This is your Calls Media Roundtable. I'm Rose Aguilar. Now we are going to talk about the worsening humanitarian situation in Gaza and Israel's looming ground military invasion of Rafah. The Palestinian death toll is about to hit 30,000. UNICEF estimates that at least 1,000 children have had one or both of their legs amputated through the end of November. Updated numbers are not available. Many amputations have been done without anesthesia. Yesterday, Christopher Lockyer, Secretary General of Doctors Without Borders, called on the UN Security Council to demand an immediate and sustained ceasefire. He said medical teams have added a new acronym to their vocabulary, WCNSF, Wounded Child, No Surviving Family. He said children who survive this war will not only bear the visible wounds of traumatic injuries, but the invisible ones too. Those of repeated displacement, constant fear, and witnessing family members literally dismembered before their eyes. These psychological injuries have led children as young as five to tell us they would prefer to die. He said there is no health system to speak of left in Gaza. Israel's military has dismantled hospital after hospital. What remains is so little in the face of such carnage. Joining us with the latest is Samer Badawi, a Palestinian-American writer and contributor to nine, I'm sorry, Plus 972 magazine. Uh, their writers are Israelis and Palestinians. He joined Plus 972 in 2014 and covered Operation Protective Edge for the magazine from Gaza and the West Bank. He writes about U.S. policy toward the region, Israel-Palestine activism, and the nexus between the movement for Palestinian rights and other liberation struggles. Hi, Samer. Thank you so much for joining us again. Thanks for having me on, Rose. Well, it's great to have you, Samer. There's just so much dire information. There was an uh, LA Times op-ed by a Dr. Ifran Galaria who just got back from Gaza. It's called, I'm an American doctor who went to Gaza. What I saw wasn't war, it was annihilation. He writes, I stopped keeping track of how many orphans I had operated on. After surgery, they'd be filed somewhere in the hospital. I'm unsure of who will take care of them or how they will survive. On one occasion, a handful of children, all about ages five to eight, were carried to the emergency room by their parents, all had single sniper shots to the head. These families were returning to their homes in Khan Yunus after Israeli tanks had withdrawn, but the snipers apparently stayed behind. None of these kids survived. There's so much information about the, the hunger, uh, the famine, the lack of basic necessities like like band-aids. I mean, how long can this go on as Israel pushes deeper into what is left of Gaza? Yeah, I think uh, the latest estimates, Rose, are that uh, up to 300,000 people in the north of Gaza right now are on the brink of starvation. Um, and that is not an exaggeration to say at this point. Um, any of us who have followed uh, the the news directly from Gaza on social media and elsewhere have seen people eating animal feed, um, struggling to find water, and in some cases while out and about trying to find those basic necess- necessities have had um, Israeli snipers shoot at them, and as, as happened with those children that you just mentioned from the LA Times op-ed. So the situation is not only dire, it's shaping up to be uh, the first truly man-made famine of the 21st century. Um, with these 300,000 people under uh, a total siege, um, the 
the uh, ability of aid agencies to actually uh, get aid to that part of Gaza um, is is pretty much nil at this point. The last attempt was by the World Food Program two days ago, um, and they were unable to actually deliver the aid because of the lack of security in the area. And they've since actually halted all attempts to do so. Uh, meanwhile, UNRWA, the UN Refugee uh, Agency or Relief Works and Agency, Re- Relief and Works Agency, as it's known by its full name, um, uh, has has put out uh, desperate calls for funding uh, in an attempt to save some of the uh, the damage that's been done by um, American and European countries, cutting off that funding altogether um, on the basis of Israeli allegations that have yet to be not only proven, but actually provided to the UN themselves. Um, and so even if UNRWA were able to raise that money, um, uh, the fact of the matter is that their aid trucks are not able to get into Israel for a couple of different reasons. Um, I was speaking to Juliette Tuma, who is the chief spokesperson for, for UNRWA uh, globally, and she told me that uh, there is a massive flower shipment that is now uh, at, uh, docked at Ashdod Port um, off of Gaza uh, that has been forbidden from entering. The contractors who are usually the ones who process this and bring it into Gaza have been told by the Israeli government that they're not allowed to do so. At the same time, Karam Abu Salam, or as it's known in Hebrew, Karam Shalom, on the southwestern tip of Gaza, um, at what used to be the main sort of humanitarian aid entry point um, uh, prior to this war uh, or this assault by Gaza, um, is almost completely shut down. And that's not only because of Israeli policy, it's also because of Israeli protesters who are remarkably um, uh, singing and dancing and uh, filming themselves doing so as they stop aid trucks from entering Gaza. So we have a situation now where um, not only are people starving and not only is the sole agency with the ability to provide aid to those starving people basically on its knees, um, but we have no prospects for resolving the issue um, uh, either from the Americans, from the Europeans, or from the international community at large. Um, in short, Rose, it's, it's a horrible situation and uh, there doesn't seem to be an end in sight at this point. Yesterday, the Commissioner General of UNRWA tweeted that in just over four months in Gaza, there have been more children, more journalists, more medical personnel, and more UN staff killed than anywhere in the world during a conflict. It is with profound regret that I must now inform you that UNRWA has reached a breaking point with Israel's repeated calls to dismantle it and the freezing of funding by donors at a time of unprecedented humanitarian needs in Gaza. Um, Sky News has done investigations about Israeli claims about UNRWA and Hamas links. And just yesterday, The Guardian posted a piece called U.S. Intelligence Cast Doubt on Israeli claims of UNRWA Hamas links, according to a report. Uh, we might do a show about all of this in the future. We don't have time to go over this right now, but this was a Wall Street Journal piece uh, that declared that there's a very low confidence in these claims that were made by Israel. So it's just important to put that out there because it got so much attention and because so many people uh, are starving, really, as a result of this. We've got 2.2 million at imminent risk of famine. You know, and Samer, I think for some context, I, I just keep thinking about this. Bet Salem, the Israeli human rights organization, um, put out a report about starvation 
about a month ago. And I remember uh, someone from Beth Salem was on Democracy Now! and said, it's important to remember, we're talking about a place that is about an hour from Tel Aviv. This is not a remote area where you cannot reach with food. No, absolutely. And in fact, I'm, I mean, I think that's one of the uh, the, the stark realities about uh, the occupied territories is that you can go, I mean, Gaza is is, a, is the starkest example, to be sure. Um, but even, I mean, anyone who's been to Jerusalem will tell you that going from east to west Jerusalem is like going from the developing world to the fully developed world in a matter of steps. Um, and Gaza, in fact, uh, when, when I was uh, there in 2014 and, and you and I last spoke, um, I recall distinctly being at a, a gas station um, right at the Erez border crossing where people were sitting around in the mid-afternoon having beers and, and uh, you know, and getting drunk, basically, um, as you could hear the sound of tank shells um, across the border. So it, that's, I mean, Beth Salem uh, has, has been uh, uh, absolutely fantastic on pointing out this issue over decades. Um, but you're right that during this war in particular, um, the the dissonance has been um, deafening. I mean, there's no other way to put it. Um, but, you know, it, it's important to note here that uh, all of this uh, could have been avoided had the international community and the U.S. administration in particular paused to consider um, the the evidence. And, and as you pointed out, the Wall Street Journal, I mean, none other than the Wall Street Journal has come out and said, but that evidence is simply not there in the case of the allegations against UNRWA. Um, and if you speak to people, as I have um, in the last few weeks, who, who currently work for UNRWA or have in the past, they will remind you that these allegations come up at every single juncture um, when the Israelis are trying to wage a, a campaign in the way that they are now. Um, but the, the fact of the matter is that um, these allegations do not withstand any scrutiny. Um, and... You know, looking back at the record, I think it's also important to note that they came out the day of the International Court of Justice's determination that Israel was plausibly committing a genocide in Gaza. And I don't think that's any accident. Today, we're speaking with Samar Badawi, contributor to Plus 972 Magazine, an independent online nonprofit magazine run by a group of Palestinian and Israeli journalists. Samer, let's talk about what is happening in terms of the, the politics here and the two-state solution, which, of course, we hear about regularly. A couple of days ago, Israeli lawmakers voted to back Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's rejection of any unilateral recognition of a Palestinian state. Western powers, including the United States, have been repeating the mantra of a two-state solution as a long-term path to peace. At the same time, the United States and others are supplying arms to Israel. In fact, I, I, I just heard on Democracy Now! this morning an, a, a, an important reminder. Um, the Biden administration has asked Congress for another $14 billion to fund Israel's assault on Gaza. So that's very important. Also, the United States consistently vetoes resolutions calling for a ceasefire. So what do you make of the vote in the Israeli Knesset and the, the rhetoric coming out of Western capitals uh, about a two-state two solution. I mean, is that even possible at this time? Well, I mean, in point of fact, it hasn't been possible for decades at this point. Um, so just to, to sort of lay out what happened, there were, um, I, I believe, 99 Knesset members out of 120 voted to back Netanyahu on a largely symbolic uh, sort of claim 
that Israel will not recognize a unilaterally declared Palestinian state. And the alternative to that, as the Israelis tell it, is that uh, no state can can uh, can happen um, without uh, direct negotiations between the Israelis and the Palestinians, um, which is to say that only Israel can decide whether to end its occupation and abide by international law, because in fact, that is the only uh, uh, sort of alternative to the occupation is, is having a Palestinian state and, and the right to self-determination. So the vote also made clear that Israel would retain security control, which means total control of the West Bank and Gaza for an indefinite period. And that, of course, flies in the face of everything that we've been hearing from our own Secretary of State here in the United States. Um, but the slate of hand here is that Netanyahu does not say in public what he has said in private for years, um, that he is the only one standing in the way of a Palestinian state. Instead, what the Knesset backed him up on is that a state can only emerge from negotiations. But as we were saying here at the, at the top of this question, those negotiations have been going on for decades. Um, and in fact, if you look at the, the, the record that Netanyahu himself has, he's been in power for all but 18 months of the last 10 years. And in that time, there hasn't been a single uh, uh, negotiation between the Palestinians and Israelis. So in fact, Netanyahu has made good on his promise. And um, it's, it's clear that what the Knesset um, basically voted on on Wednesday was to uh, affirm what they already knew about him. So there's really nothing new in the vote itself. What is interesting about it is the, the timing of it, right? So as we were saying in terms of the UNRWA allegations and the fact that they came out on the day of the ICJ determination about Israel's plausible genocidal acts in Gaza, the, the vote in the Knesset, Knesset actually coincided with uh, this week's ICJ hearing on Israel's occupation of Palestinian territories. And this one is slightly, it's not slightly, it's altogether different, actually, from the other ICJ hearing. Um, and it, in fact, was planned uh, before October 7th. But the point of that, uh, that hearing, which at which there are 50 countries present, um, is to determine what responsibility those countries and other third parties have enforcing Israel to end its occupation and thereby recognize a Palestinian state. So Netanyahu taking um, the step in the Knesset and putting forward a sort of show of unity um, is all about kind of countering that narrative in the international community right now. Um, so the the other piece of this, of course, is that um, the during the negotiations prior to 2014, when Netanyahu took power, um, the the Israelis were also uh, uh, disingenuous in their approach to the Oslo peace process, as it's, as it's known. Um, and in fact, in the 30 years since the Oslo Accords, the number of settlers in the West Bank has more than doubled. Um, and then it's important to note, of course, that just this morning, the Israeli government announced a further 3,000 new settler units in the West Bank. Um, so all of this to say that although the, you know, the Knesset vote would appear to be um, something new and something that uh, Netanyahu is billing as uh, a show of unity. In fact, it is it has been his policy and the policy of the Israeli government for the better part of three decades now. You ran a fairly lengthy piece recently 
about what is happening in Gaza. Uh, it's called laying the groundwork for Gaza's permanent exodus, with Egypt reportedly preparing for an influx of refugees and UNRWA on the brink of collapse. Israel's second Nakba fantasies could soon become reality. Can you tell us, wh- wh- I mean, to think about so many people who are stuck in Rafah, and then people in, in the north, of course, um, what are you hearing from people about you know, the, the decision? I mean, at the end of the day, they obviously need to eat and they want to survive. So what are the options at this point for people who are just, who can't handle this anymore? I mean, the PTSD, losing their, their children, their family members, their loved ones. What are the options at this point? Yeah, Um well, first of all, in terms of PTSD, I, I would point um, your listeners to a great op-ed in the New York Times. Uh, I believe it was this morning. It might have been yesterday um, by uh, Dr. Yara Hasi, ASI, who talks about um, the, this notion of PTSD and how it's so difficult to, to even apply in Gaza, given that the trauma never ends. Um, but uh, on that note, I mean, I think you're absolutely right to point out, Rose, that there's the the sort of political narrative around all of this um, and the importance of international law and making sure that Palestinians are not made refugees yet again. And then there's the human experience. Um, And to me, there is nothing more profound and dramatic um, that kind of exemplifies what Palestinians in Gaza are going through right now than taking a look at the crowdfunding site GoFundMe. Anybody can go on there and all you have to do is search for the word Gaza and you will find page upon page, as I wrote in my article, hundreds upon hundreds of families um, who are desperately trying to get out through the Rafah border um, mm. with Egypt. And, you know, just to, to be clear here, that's what, what that involves is essentially a five to $6,000 um, fee, some would call it a bribe. Uh, to um, middlemen, essentially, in Egypt to help people get out. And this is per person, by the way, five to 6,000 per person um, for a population that uh, 80% of which lived below the poverty line before October 7th. Um, and so on that, you know, on a crowdfunding site like GoFundMe, you'll find these stories of people who, as you said, have run out of options. And, you know, it reminds me, actually, Rose, the, la- the last time you and I spoke was, in fact, during that last war, um, that last major ground operation um, in 2014. And I remember distinctly, I, I, I know that we were talking about at the time, something like 200,000 Palestinians who had been displaced, um, mostly from areas uh, on, on the east of Gaza that had been decimated, like Shuja'i and Huza'a, and, and now, for all intents and purposes, don't exist anymore. Um and that number, 200,000, is now 10 times what it was in 2014. And the difference between then and now is that 10 years ago, those Palestinians could go to an UNRWA school. They could go to Al-Shifa Hospital. They could go to Al-Nasser Hospital. These were people that I interviewed and photographed and spoke to at the time. Um, and, you know, they weren't guaranteed safety, but they had a reasonable sense that they would not be bombed. Mm. Um, in a hospital or in a school or in a UN facility. And the 2 million people that are now displaced in Gaza, and I, and as you mentioned, there are about 1.4 million of them are in Rafah, um, now don't have any of, of that certainty. Um, and I think what I'm hearing from the ground and what I'm hearing from uh, you know my, my fellow reporters at 972 and elsewhere 
um, is that any family that is given the opportunity now to to find respite, to find some safety uh, while this war um, or this assault uh, uh, reaches some kind of horrible conclusion, will take it. They will absolutely take it. Um, The question then becomes, what what are the implications of that? Yeah. Right. Will they be able to go back? I mean, we're going to be doing years of shows about what is happening in Gaza and rebuilding. And I mean, there's just so much. No, almost all of the universities have been bombed. The hospitals have been bombed. Basic infrastructure is gone. Um, Samer, we have about a minute left. And I'm just wondering, the United States is constantly vetoing a UN ceasefire resolution. Uh, Last night, we had 13 Jewish Congress members who are now calling for a temporary ceasefire. As I said earlier, I don't know what that means. They didn't go into it in their letter to President Biden. Uh, But these are Congress members who, according to what I've read, have not called for a ceasefire until now. So you've got these Jewish members of Congress calling for a ceasefire, and yet the, the United States is vetoing a UN resolution for a ceasefire. Where do you see this going? How much longer can this last? I mean, I, I think in the case of this war, um, it it needs to, uh, I, I don't see the United States playing a proactive role in ending it, although it has the, the key to do so in the, in the form of this military assistance. I think in the United States on the political scene here, um, the most interesting work is happening locally. If you look at city councils and now increasingly state assemblies as well, um, there is more and more pressure. At last count, I think there, there have been more than 50 cities that have passed ceasefire resolutions, including where you are now. Um, and uh, the, the people who are doing that now, and in many cases unanimously, are our future represent, representatives, senators, um, and hopefully presidents. And when that happens, perhaps a generation from now, um, we can see a, a true sea change in American policy. But right now, um, I'm not seeing America playing the kind of role that it needs to be doing. Um, and the implications of that for the international order, for America standing in the world, are certainly topics for another show, but um, I think they will be uh, profound and long-lasting. And we should also mention these protests get some coverage at the local level, but there are protests happening day after day, of course, by Palestinians and also by Jewish groups. They're shutting down offices. They're shutting down roads, freeways, the Golden Gate Bridge, for example. Um, Biden was in town in California raising money for his reelection campaign. And they were, they followed him everywhere he went. And like I said, it's getting local attention, but not so much at the national level. And that's also important to touch on, Samer. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks to you and everyone at Plus 972 for your important reporting. Samar Badawi is a contributor to Plus 972 magazine. Plus 972 is the international country code to Israel. Plus 972 magazine is an independent online nonprofit magazine run by a group of Palestinian and Israeli journalists. And you can find Samar's reporting at yourcallradio.org. Thank you so much for joining us, Samar. Thanks, Rose. Thank you. Thanks to Malihe Razazan for producing today's show. And thanks to Kevin Vance for engineering our show. Thanks so much for joining us. I'm Rose Aguilar. It's your call. This week on Science Friday, how well can a shark smell? This kind of bursts a lot of people's bubbles, but sharks actually have the same smelling ability 
as any other fish. We'll talk with a scientist who's putting shark noses to the test. That's on Science Friday from WNYC Studios. Science Friday this afternoon at 4 o'clock, followed at 5 by Big Picture Science. Lithium. Only hydrogen and helium are lighter. Sure, it's a little exotic, but lithium is essential for the world of tomorrow. It is at the heart of every pretty high-power battery. We go to Southern California, where the best storage batteries begin their lives. It's Lithium Valley on the next Big Picture Science. 5 o'clock this afternoon here on 91.7 KALW, San Francisco Bay Area, KALW.org. It's 11 o'clock. From KCRW, this is Left, Right, and Center. Welcome to Left, Right, and Center. Donald Trump said if a NATO country is delinquent on paying its fair share to the military alliance, the U.S. would not protect that country if Russia attacked. Russia, Trump said, should do whatever the hell they want. Does Trump mean it? And if so, how dangerous is that message to the world? Or is this bluster? Either way, what is Trump's policy goal here? And who is his audience? Later, a special counsel's report raises questions about President Biden's memory and mental acuity. He and Donald Trump have had their fair share of gaffes. To what extent should this shape how voters perceive the candidates? And was it a special counsel's role to bring this up? Also, a legal case in Georgia raises bigger questions about affirmative action. Are programs specifically benefiting people based on skin color acceptable under the law if they're trying to address past discriminatory practices? All that's next on Left, Right and Center.